So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, on Tuesday, we head to the battlefields of medieval Spain to witness the very first ambulance. On Wednesday, it's the anniversary of the day Coca-Cola's creator hit on his winning formula. He dropped the wine, but kept the cocaine. On Thursday, the thief who stuffed the crown jewels down his trousers. And on Friday, when free-spirited Danish parenting put 90s New York in a tears. We discuss this and more on Today in History with the Retrospectors. Ten minutes every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, man fans. Ollie Mann here with The Modern Man. It is, as you will have noted from your televisions, that time of year when millions of us decamp to muddy fields, ostensibly to enjoy some music. Uh, Hello, therefore, to Catherine in East Yorkshire, who tweeted me last week that she spent a day binge listening to this podcast whilst folding loo roll in preparation for Glastonbury. Very wise on both counts. I love that we're anyone's summer soundtrack as they get in mood for a festival. Uh, And uh, this week's show is full of party bangers. It is a summer festivals special. Every element of the show this week, from the zeitgeist right through to the foxhole, touches on issues arising from hundreds of thousands of people gathering in a field to get off their tits and or get on down. And if you've ever wondered how massive events like Reading and Glastow and V Festival get put together, uh, you're going to enjoy my interview with our feature guest this week, who's one of the folks who set up The Big Chill which went from being a hugely successful music event in a club to being a massive mainstream summer festival, taking over huge venues in the British countryside, and then ultimately it got sold off to a major live events group, and, well, it doesn't exist anymore. So uh, I think he has a lot to teach us. I think you'll find him an interesting guest. In fact, he was one of my favourite interviews to do recently because I was casually texting him, uh, Pete his name is, uh, and trying to arrange this interview, and it happened to be a day when I happened to be working in Bournemouth And by complete serendipity, he'd based his caravan for one night near Froome in Somerset, which is about an hour away from Bournemouth. So so basically, pretty much spontaneously, we went from chatting over Twitter to agreeing to meet up and record this interview. I drove to meet him at a pub and we had a burger and a beer, and then we went back to his campsite and recorded this chat. So the, the whole process, actually, of meeting him felt a bit like a mini-festival in the great outdoors. It was really fun to do. Um, and exactly why I love doing this show for you guys. I mean, what I've just described is uh, very much not how broadcast radio works. Um, so uh, this week you will learn why you should never try and organise a festival in Dis in Norfolk. You will learn exactly how long the most fertile window of conception is after a woman has ovulated. And you'll learn how to use acrobats to evade the criminal justice bill. Let's go. On this week's Modern Man... We had a lodger in one room, we had two young kids and we had the big chill all in one tiny flat. Counterculture, corporate sponsors and chilling out. How to build a summer festival. It's butlins with more sexual butter. And your questions of sex can't come quickly enough. For Alex Fox. But first, with all the summer festival trends, it's a man who recently sat next to Kate Adi at a train station. It's Ollie Pitt. You saw that email? Yeah. Good. You've been spending a lot of time Googling stuff about festivals. Yep. What are your top festival picks? Well, Ollie, the first one is G. It's G with an exclamation mark. It's in the Faroe Islands. 
I don't know where the Faroe Islands are. They're north of Scotland. You're into your adventure sports. I am. Is it somewhere that you would visit for that kind of caper? Yes, is the short answer. I'd love to go there, do a bit of walking, do a bit of like staring into the distance going... <sighs> and <But> you, instead... <laughs> but instead, you can go there and watch bands like Mu, Bilderbuk and Bombino. <laughs> and you can also see Reykjavik Kadudtetur who are an all-woman rapping outfit from okay. Iceland. There's, and there's loads of them, by the way. There's, like, in this band, which I couldn't pronounce, there's, like, maybe 16 of them. That's, like, half of Iceland. See, I thought maybe you'd found just a really cool festival, you know, in the style of Benny Hassim, but everyone knows about that one now, which is actually quite a big deal, but in a nice place. Mm. You've just found a nice place that happens to have a music event on. No, this, this is quite cool, actually. So it's right on the beach, yeah. beautiful mountain terrain and water, and you can sit in this lovely... I don't know if it's lovely, it's probably got semen and horrible other juices in it. It's a, a, a wood-fired jacuzzi right yeah so they're all sitting there looking over the view and then you can go and watch moo Binderbook, and bambino okay why would it have semen in it well because that's what people do at festivals isn't it they just what stimulate themselves on water jets <laughs> not at any festival i've been to they have, they have sex in jacuzzis probably right. i mean okay. it sounds like a very rock and roll type thing to do doesn't it if you if you've got a jacuzzi and you're into rock and roll and you're a festival just have <laughs> sex in it <laughs> Day tickets are going to cost you $119.91. Oh, nothing cute we, about that, is no. there? No. When is it? It's on the 13th to the 15th of July. Okay, so that's G featuring M. What yep. else might we like to see? Arch Stonyani. This is just on the uh, southwest of Moscow, this one. So wow. So a bit, bit of a way in the Kaluga region. This is a, a land art festival. Mm-hmm. As far as I can tell, there's no music. Okay, so what do you do? You walk around and you look at art. Okay, so it's like a sculpture park festival. Yes, and uh, it will cost you 999 p's with the cross through it. I reckon it's a bit like an English heritage site. You know, you like go along and read the plaques and that. Outside. I reckon it's like that. Sounds like basically if you've got a MacBook Pro, if yeah. you've had one since the 90s, then that's the festival for you. Give me one more. Brainchild Festival. Oh, that's in English. So um, is that somewhere in Britain? Yes, yeah, in oh, East, well East Sussex. 7th to the 9th of July. Yeah, why should we go there? Because they are a DIY-powered and volunteer-led festival celebrating the talents and ideas of the people around us. Okay, so does that mean you have to turn up with your own solar-powered toilet or something? No, it's just a massive cross-section of pop culture. There's loads. Spoken word, art, well, most festivals do this, don't they? Singing, theatre and a little bit of land art going on as well. So you don't have to go all the way to Russia for that. You well, can have it here. It's interesting you say most festivals do that. That has been a shift, hasn't it, in the past few years? It used to be that there'd be a comedy tent, mm. but basically the mainstream festivals were all about music and selling you stuff. And now it's the case, isn't it, that actually all of the festivals have gone a bit artsy, even if they don't really mean it, just to kind of prove their credentials across a whole bunch of disciplines it's not just about going to watch pop stars anymore is it no i remember uh, when i first went to reading festival in between seeing the bands that you wanted to see the most interesting thing to do was walk around the campsite and go god there's a lot of rubbish here mm. you know there's nothing else to do apart from stare at the rubbish well you could burn it or you burn it yeah or you knock over a portaloo so they're giving you more to do now aren't they? <laughs> they are. have you ever been in a portaloo when it was knocked over no. no. And I do think about it. I was in a portaloo at the weekend. I'm not going to tell you why, but I was in one. And I looked down and I thought, if this tipped over, yes. it was a windy day. Yeah. Ooh. Do you prefer an open air toilet at a festival to a portaloo? No. Really? With a door, so you're not being observed, but you've got the fresh air coming in rather than heated up poo. Yeah, okay, yeah, you put it like that. Yeah, because they do get really hot and sweaty. Really sweaty, yeah. yeah. they are horrible. And you're like sliding on the seat. 
I like the diffuse. I like the diffused light in there, though. I like it in a portaloo because you know they got the. That's a weird thing to say, isn't it? No, no, you need to make an installation out of it and take it to your Russian festival. Um, (laughs) And festivals are more popular than they've ever been, right? Yeah, fourteen million people went to festivals in 2016, and that was a thousand different festivals in this country. In that, the UK. That is a lot. Although some of those people will be the same people at every festival, like that bloke who sells the gourmet hot dogs. <laughs> yeah. And so when you go to the festivals now, you can't guarantee that you're going to get, even at the DIY festival or whatever, that you're going to get a camping slot that's near the big stages or near where you want it to be, mm-hmm. which does mean there's a lot of people trying to sell you stuff, right? So there's um, sort of camping accessories and things to make sure you can get clean water and that kind of thing. Yeah, it, because it's all about being comfortable at festivals now, isn't it? What does, what does Man About Town Ollie Peer always make sure he has with him when he goes to a festival? I have a little uh, camping stove called a BioLite stove, mm-hmm. right? And you can basically pick up little twigs and stuff as, throughout the day, mm-hmm. and you put them in there and you light it, and it's got a little fan in it. And uh, the heat powers the fan. You know, you get a, a, a ferocious flame to, to cook on, but the additional power that's created by the heat it then uh, charges your phone. No. Yeah, you can plug your phone in. Oh, that's good. And because of the way it works, because there's like there's there's a, a fan underneath, you don't get any smoke. Is that fun though? Because I mean, you want to be sitting around a campfire, don't you? At the end of the evening. I mean, ideally, in a way, you you want someone to show off their campfire skills, actually rubbing two twigs together, not picking them up and sticking them into a USB socket. Yes, but this is safe and practical, okay. which equals fun. But you found something as well for the truly um, modern glamper. Yeah. What's the most important thing, other than your tent, when you're at a festival? Water. Almost. Cup a plastic of coffee. bag. Cup oh, of coffee. A, a cup of coffee. Yeah, you okay. need a cup of coffee. Straight All away. Right. Yeah. Uh, so so it's what, a kettle. No, you need uh, the mini presso, portable espresso machine. What? Because you're not going to walk around with a bag of beans. No, no. You don't you don't need beans. This thing yeah. works with Nespresso capsules. <laughs> this is perfect for the uh the the upper middle class glamper it's battery powered presumably no it's hand powered does it have a milk frother no you can only have it black then well you could take milk with you and then i don't know blow in it and then uh, just pour it on (laughs) perfect okay and now to finish with our headline act uh how have you been going in your challenge that we set you to become a true man about town well not too bad are you twitter verified no have you held a Nando's black card? No. Have you become a Freemason? No. Have you tried the latest cult skincare treatment or product? No. Have you sat at a chef's table? No. Have you successfully enrolled on an elite dating app? No. Have you acquired AAA access to a festival? Yes. Right. Which one? Camp Festival. No, have you really? Yeah. That's a proper one. Uh, I thought you were going to say the G Festival. I'm just as surprised as you. How did it work? What happened? Well, we did the when the, the first episode went out. Yeah, and uh, the band Reverend and the Makers got in touch. Fuck off! Yeah, straight up. Uh, They're just like yeah, yeah. Okay. I cannot wait. It's so, going to be amazing. So when's that? When's Camp Festival? Twenty seventh to the thirtieth of July. So okay, hold on. We set you the challenge of getting AAA access to a festival. Yeah. Someone heard it on the show and got in touch and said, "Yeah, we're Reverend and the Makers. Come to Camp Festival." Yeah. How comes that's in their dominion? Like, how many tickets do you get for a festival VIP area if you're one of the acts performing, I wonder? It's Reverend and the Makers, Ollie. They probably just go, uh, give me the tickets. Do you want me to find this stuff <laughs> yes, out? Because I'm going to be there. Yes, I, the whole point of this was to uh, entertain yes, so but ask, inform. Because you, you can't ask me the questions before I've done the thing. Okay, all right, but I'm, I'm telling you what questions we'd like to know. Give me a list. We'd like to know. I'll take them with me. How many VIPs are there at a festival? Mm-hmm. What do you get backstage? Yeah. Let, let us know the truth. 
don't give us euphemisms like oh there was a big flowers bill like tell us if there are drugs being openly passed around yeah i want to know what goes on backstage at camp festival will you find out for us yeah and i'll find out if they prefer portaloos or open-sided toilets (laughs) i'm sure there's a song on their third album about that uh all right well good luck with that thanks very much checking with you again next week goodbye bye Have you ever wondered how a big mainstream music festival comes into being? Well, for more than a decade, the Big Chill Festival welcomed tens of thousands of British festival goers to escape from their daily lives and, for a weekend, watch acts as diverse as Lily Allen, The Proclaimers, Basement Jacks, and Leonard Cohen. One of the men behind it was Pete Lawrence. I started by asking him what it is that you need to create the perfect festival. Imagination, originality, being on the ball in terms of popular culture and moving with the zeitgeist and doing it differently. I'd say a combination of those things. Do you remember the first festival you went to? Yes, it was um, Glastonbury in 1983. Well, no, it wasn't actually. There's one that doesn't really count, which was Reading in 75. Why doesn't Reading count? Um, it was two main stages next to each other and a crossover of bands and very much a sort of, this is what we're going to give you for entertainment. You can sit and absorb it. Whereas Glastonbury was a much more immersive experience. So I almost discounted Reading because it was like going to a concert, really. It wasn't. It's funny you make that decision because my first festival was Reading in... Uh, what would it have been, 1997 or something. Right. And then my first festival was Lastonbury in 2001. Mm. And it is that, isn't it? Reading feels like a promoted event that's on steroids. Glastonbury feels like Woodstock, but now. It was a lifestyle thing. It was a, a way of life, a choice, what to go to. Whereas Reading, you just sat there and if you were lucky, you'd avoid being um, hit by a flying bottle of piss. <laughs> but Glastonbury was a completely immersive experience. It was um, revelatory, I think, even down to the, the main stage DJ playing Dollar Brand and a whole series of South African tracks, which blew me away. And seeing King Sonny Ade live on stage, seeing Curtis Mayfield, Moving Hearts from Ireland... It was all the music I was into and more. There was a real sense it was about counterculture. You'd see Bruce Kent from CND on the main stage at lunchtime on Sunday. There was a sense that it was putting out messages and playing a really important part politically in the, in focusing people. And so from then on, have you always felt that a good festival is one that's quite holistic like that? It's not just about music or it's not just about art. It's not just about, frankly, partying. Absolutely. I think a real mix of things is um, is very much about um, how I conceive the idea for the big chill. And I could see it growing beyond just being a chill-out club that was just playing ambient music. Um, already there were things in motion that were um, pushing me in a particular direction, but I wanted it to be really broad and inclusive. So where did the big chill come from? It came out of... A magazine called On, which I started um, editing and publishing back in 93, and that started to create a scene around um, some of the reviews and features that were being included. There was a sense that people were looking for an event to represent that. 
So um, what, what year are we talking about here? Well, this would have been 94. Because we'd, we've just had the 25th anniversary, haven't we, of that massive rave. Castle Morton. That was the kind of the, the, the peak, wasn't it? It was the zenith of Acid House. It was, and that was the year the Criminal Justice Bill came in. So we, we became described as a festival in a club. Who were you running the big chill with? That was me and my ex-wife, Katrina. And it was a three-bedroom flat in Stroud Green, just north of Finsbury Park. We had a lodger in one room, we had two young kids, and we had the big chill all in one tiny flat. So it was, um, yeah, trying times, but um, certainly very fertile territory for new initiatives. And what, what, how businessy were you about it? Because you were obviously following an impulse to create something that you wanted to attend primarily. Yeah. It was born... Um, not of spreadsheets and business plans at all. It was um, conceived through an idea of getting out our our address book, which had just become digital for the first time, and thinking, well, let's email a few people. And I think we we just got on the internet that year in '94, so we had a head start. And a lot of electronic musicians seemed to be early adopters for the internet, but hardly Funny anyone that. else had heard of it. Yeah. I think the idea was to um, to just create a database of our friends. Um, we had 150 at the Union Chapel for the first big chill, just in one of the back rooms, and then we quickly spread into the other back rooms and I think pushed the numbers up to about 900. Did you think this is going to be massive, or did you just think this is going to be the best gig at Union Chapel? It was very convenient that the Union Chapel option came up when it did, and it just seemed to make sense of that sort of Sunday all-day happening. I could sense something big was going to happen, but I had no idea at that point it would become an outdoor event. Um, It was only when we started being goaded by our friends after being described as a festival in a club, and they said, why can't you do one in a field? And what was your reaction to that? I was a bit nervous about it because it required more of a financial commitment. So Um, what was it you had to pay for? You had to hire a space, which was a field. It was hiring tents, portaloos, paying the acts. I think we paid them all 100 quid each, probably. How did you decide? I mean, without the guiding hand of some corporation telling you this is how to do it, how did you decide who you should write to and how much you should pay them? You just go completely on instinct and you ring people up and say, are you interested in this madcap idea? And nearly all of them said yes. So the first festival happened. How many people showed up? We had around 600 in a field in the Black Mountains, just down the road from Lantoni Priory. And had those people mostly been shipped up from North London? Mostly people who'd been coming to the um, sessions we'd done at the Union Chapel we did have a bunch of Bristol ravers trying to gate crash. <laughs> somehow got hold of our... So we only mailed the uh, location at the very last minute. So I think somebody circulated the email and we had a, a bunch of very eat up ravers twitching around in their cars and trying to listen for repetitive beats. But I think I'd programmed... Um, pure ambient at that point (laughs) presumably you didn't have much in the way of security we had um the farmer Wyndham morgan who sadly passed away a couple of years ago and we took it in turns to be there with him he had his pitchfork at the top of the track (laughs) at the end of the farm and that was it it was massively exciting if i had to pick one big chill event that would probably be the one because we'd pulled it off um On the cusp of the criminal justice bill, we had the police turning up in their panda car 
um, with a freshly printed copy of the criminal justice bill on the Friday, and I deliberately programmed the circus, thinking we might get a visit on the Friday. And they turned up and uh, read us the criminal justice bill and then turned around and said, um, it's not a Ray visit at all, it's um, something else. We can't quite figure out what it is. Um, but we like the level of organisation you've got here. Can we have a look at your computer records? And they came back uh, when they were off duty. They'd been to Brecon Jazz Festival, which was on the same weekend, and I think ended up making a few arrests there and kept coming back to the Big Chill to enjoy it. So you got some things right, but you must have got some things wrong. What did you learn from that first year that you knew not to implement again? I think it was more the year after when we did Norfolk and uh, came unstuck. The local papers um, branded us as Is This Festival Rave and front page headline in Dis in Norfolk. We literally got run out of town and we had to find an alternative site. What, just before the festival happened? This was a couple of months before the festival happened. What did you do? We were looking around for another site and then we just received a call on the spur of the moment from a man called Ash Windham who offered the village of Hingham right out in deepest rural Norfolk. We had the people who were planning to do the bar pull out at the last minute. We had the worst storms to hit Norfolk a week before the event, which completely flooded the site and ripped down some of the tents. And we still um, still managed to get through to the end of the weekend, even though we were bankrupted. Um, we, um, we managed to keep it going. That doesn't sound fun. It wasn't fun. It was um, It's probably fair to say it was the worst weekend of my life, actually. When are you on site, typically, when you run a festival? How soon before the gates open are the organisers there? It got to the stage with the big chill where there'd be a big crew who'd be on site for at least a week, probably longer, ten days, um, setting up tents and all the fencing and trackway and everything else that needs to be put in place. You're creating a, a city in the middle of the country, really. Yeah. Um, for 30,000, 40,000 people. What's the biggest challenge in, as you say, building a city? I mean, is it plumbing? Is it toilets? Um, I'm sure there are many challenges, but the weather ultimately has to be the biggest. There was one year at East North Castle where cars were being were literally floating down the street about a week before the event. Do you remember when Tewkesbury was underwater and I think the pictures of the cathedral made the uh, front pages of the papers mm. and um, that's where you were is it we were very close <laughs> to that so. why did you go to different places every year we other festivals choose a site we had um, five good years at Lama Tree Gardens on the Wiltshire Dorset borders which really made the big chill in many ways then we went to East North Castle via Lulworth Castle I think um, some castle owners um, met at a convention and one recommended us to another so Eastnor approached us and um, we ended up there for many years which became our sort of last base. And obviously you meant, you mentioned health and safety I mean the thing that immediately one's mind jumps to with festivals is drugs what's the issue there with running a chill out event because as a club it's something that people come to the next day so that's not such an issue but at a festival for three days presumably it's very much part and parcel for a lot of the crowd yeah you just have to hope you have policies in place that will um take care of people if if they get um out of order really but um my own policy to drugs has generally been not to do them because i like to keep my feet on the ground but obviously there are people who who do and um you have to accept that and move forward with a sympathetic stewarding policy 
and try and work with the local police and councils to assure them that um, you're taking a responsible attitude to that. Yeah, because, I mean, it, it's it's noticeable at Glastonbury that there are police walking around clearly ignoring the fact mm. that people are walking around absolutely off their tits. That's better, is it, than trying to make an example of someone for something that presumably isn't harming anyone else? I think you'd be opening up all sorts of problems if you were to be draconian about drug usage because it's it's throughout society, it's happening. And um, I think to really try and push that, as I say, in a legislative way would be um, counterproductive. OK, so artistic policy... I definitely remember as a teenager going to festivals and knowing, right, well, that stage is the kind of... The people that are on there I like, so I'm going to see everyone else who's on that stage. Do you feel like you had a responsibility in that way? Very much so, I think. And people did become quite tribal about the stages they would go to. Some might go to the castle stage or the sanctuary and avoid the dance tent. When we started bringing in a lot of sponsored bars, that became a complete game-changer for the Big Chill and completely changed the atmosphere at that particular aspect of the site. So, In what way? I think there was one year, actually, where, where it got to the point where I was walking around through all the sponsored bars and had a succession of people sort of falling over in front of me through excessive intake of whatever it was, and I just thought, this is no longer what I set out to create. So... If it has to move in this direction, if, if the commercial pressure is such that alcohol sales and sponsorship are leading the way, it's time for me to get out. So that more than anything actually set in, in motion the sort of um, exit strategy, I guess, which I never wanted. You know, I always saw the big chill as something I'd be in for life. It wasn't about creating a brand and selling it. But that combined with various... Um, boardroom differences led me to a point where I thought it's time to get out and do something different. And were those boardroom differences about that kind of thing, about sponsorship and commercialisation? They were about grooming it for a sale, gearing up for maximising profits, maximising alcohol sales, just stuff that didn't sit very well with me. I was fighting a battle to keep the ethos alive and... Um, failing on several counts and that is sort of the story of every festival though isn't it and as you're talking i'm thinking well you could be describing green man or latitude a lot of festivals start as kind of cultural events and do become more commercialized but then are more popular as well and i swamp with visitors quite possibly i mean i think um that style of festivals probably had its day for me i I would look at doing an event which is well away from main stage entertainment now. It's really hard to avoid that trap of commercialism for that style of festival. It just feels outmoded now and um, a relic. And why is it hard to avoid the trap? Is it just because, you know, Carling will write to you and say, we'll give you all your cups for free if they say Carling on them? I mean, what's, what's so difficult to resist? I suppose... If you're looking at taking a festival forward, it's about pitching it at the right size, at the right budget the following year based on your gut instinct about how it will go. And inevitably, if you get that wrong, it can bring in commercial pressures where you you have to perhaps compromise. It's a fine thing that can easily easily go wrong. So um, it's delicately balanced. Hats off to festivals like Cropperty, I suppose. They know they'll get 
don't know what their crowd is, probably around 20,000, but they know the Fairport fans will come out and if they book a couple of interesting guests, they'll get their usual turnout. It seems a much much easier proposition than the big chill ever was, where we never quite knew how to pitch it. Do you remember the biggest act that you said no to? I think there was a proposition that Adele might have been interested in playing the big chill at an early stage, but I hadn't heard her at that point, so I didn't book her. Okay, so you got your payout, you agreed on it, you left. Was that easy to do? I mean, you're walking away from something that you'd, you'd spent 10 years working on. It was. It was. Um, I was desperate to get out by that point. It had become something that wasn't fun. It had peaked. I really couldn't see a way forward for it. And I think ultimately um, that vision was proved right because I think it lasted a couple of years after I left before it was sold off to Festival Republic. And then they did a couple of years and managed to bring the numbers down significantly to a point where it was losing them lots of money. So they knocked it on the head. So, But there are still big chill branded things, aren't there? There's a bar and the venues we had in London still exist. I think they call it um, We Are Big Chill is their new branding, which doesn't mean anything to me, really. Have you been in there? I popped into the Big Chill bar recently. It was horrible. <laughs> <laughs> really horrible. What, what, that I've been there recently. It's quite loud. It was loud. It strikes me it as was, not very big it, chill. It was um, not chilled at all. It was playing music that was generic. It was The furniture was um, falling apart. The Big Chill Bar was something that really helped us get through some tricky times. It was very popular, but it never really had a heart and soul for me. Okay, so you don't regret walking away. So you made the right decision. So what have you been doing? I've been um, conceptualising a social network inspired by my experience from the Big Chill Forum, actually, um, where we had some incredible um, examples of mutual support and initiatives that included um, members of the community and marriages and all sorts of stuff coming out of a simple web forum. And so, so people who had been to the festival carrying on the conversation yeah, afterwards? Or... or people even just finding it through having heard of the Big Chill and um, the forum then became the central thing for them rather than the festival. Mm-hmm. It became an ecosystem in its own way. So what's the new network? It's called Campfire Convention. I think the campfire symbolism almost comes full circle from my experiences of going to early festivals in America where the campfire became the focus. And that sort of awakened me to the incredible energy you can create around a campfire. It's a great leveller. You can have big artists turn up around a campfire and they're on the same level as everyone else. It's not about stages, it's about um, gathering and creating momentum and conversations and exchanges of ideas and um, there's no set agenda. It's not like a stage where everything's choreographed or timed. It's um, completely spontaneous happening and I wanted to reflect that in the idea of the social network as well. It feels a bit like you can't quite let go of the festival idea as you idealised it as a younger man. (laughs) And it's moving it on to the modern context it's getting away from that idea of artist creating and consumer um, sitting there and receiving it's um, everyone who comes along as part of the community. My idea is that we will eventually become Um, an event where the people who attend it create and curate the content. So it's getting away from this idea of us and them or stages or security barriers. It's just people gathering in a field, 
They don't need a big PA system, a big light show, um, security barriers. They just get together around the fire, exchange ideas and become best friends with the new people they've met. Pete Lawrence. And you can find out more about his burgeoning social network by heading to their website, campfireconvention.uk. Alex Fox is up next after this. Man fans, this show is free to download, but it is not free to produce. We research, we edit, we travel, we turn down other work so that we can make this happen. If you enjoy what we do, please support the show by buying us a beer. The average price of a pint of beer in Britain is £3.47, a little over four US dollars. Using the secure form on our website, modernman.co.uk, you can sign up to buy us just one beer a month, and by doing so, help pay for this production. We're not backed by any big company, we are making this ourselves. Uh, You can now also, if you so choose, make us a one-off donation via PayPal. Barry is the most recent donor to do that. He says, Ollie, here's a tenner. Please use it to get yourself a couple of pims, as that's much more seasonal than beer. Uh, Barry, thank you. We won't skimp on the strawberries. If you'd like to buy us a beer, just head to modernmanwith2ends.co.uk and click beer money. Thanks. Alex Fox is here with the foxhole, and at the risk of sounding like Alan Partridge, Alex, I must ask you, is there such a thing as a sex festival? There is. In fact, I was hoping to go to one this year, but unfortunately it's been postponed until next year. Why? What went wrong? Uh, <laughs> I think they're just uh, they're just trying to make sure that everything is in place for it to be as wild and wonderful as it possibly can be. Uh, it's been going since 2013, and it's called Swing Fields. Nice. The clue is in the name, really, isn't it? Well, well they could have got away fields, with... <laughs> it was already taken. Swingfields is a festival that has all the standard stuff like um, bands and comedians, but they also have... Uh, you can an... have sex with them all? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know whether you're allowed to get it on with the acts, but uh, certainly getting it on with each other is encouraged. They also have sort of more sexually um, skewed activities like tug of war, naked tug of war and mm-hmm. jelly wrestling uh, and zorbing, you know, when you get in one of those giant inflatable transparent plastic balls mm. and then run around or, or hurtle yourself down a hill. Uh, but I believe that they just do it in their underwear. Uh, it doesn't I, sound all that different to Butlins, I must say. But then there always was a kind of sexual undercurrent to the British holiday camp, wasn't there? It's Butlins with more sexual butter. Let's move on to our question of the week, sponsored as ever by our good friends at mycondom.com. Uh, Alex, what do they have for this summer festival season? Well, if things are heating up in your tent, you might want to try an a condom Amor- with a fan built in. <laughs> Am I wrong? No, the Amore Cold Moments cooling condom right. um, is uh, it's lubricated with the kind of a, a chilling cooling effect lubricant. Those things tend to be quite divisive. People either love them or hate them, but it's worth giving it a whirl. That's interesting because I know that one of the tips that uh, sex spurts, which I know you prefer not to be termed as, often It's okay, issue, I'm over it now. Um, <laughs> one of the tips they often issue is spice things up in the bedroom with some ice, you know, all nine and a half weeks. Uh-huh. That's playing with the pleasure-pain thing, isn't it, ice? Whereas actually the feeling of something cold on your knob I just can't imagine actually being pleasurable. It's more kind of a menthol feeling. Right. Have you ever tried that minty shower gel? 
yeah. mint and eucalyptus shower gel yeah, yeah. some people really love the tingle of that Fizzy. on their bits yeah. other people absolutely hate it in fact the brand original source have made an extra tingly like super super hyper minty version and it's my philosophy that that has nothing to do with people's armpits and everything to do with people's <laughs> wriggly bits I reckon that that was specifically manufactured for the people who want an extra minty blast on their down belows well it's an abuse of the word philosophy but I'll take it Alex it was entertaining <laughs> it's uh, a philosophy <laughs> but yeah if you like minty shower gels then you may well like cooling chilling tingling lubes and the associated condoms okay this week's question comes from a man who has chosen to remain anonymous and he says Alex my wife and I are trying for kids so my talent for not coming too quickly something which we both enjoyed in the past is now causing a problem now we have to have sex when the thermometer demands and there sometimes isn't the usual amount of time so alex do you have any tips to increase the times i can ejaculate within a smaller time window so this chap wants some tips on how to make his junk spunk the maximum number of times within the minimum period of time so that he can inject his wife with enough sperm to hopefully get her pregnant during her ovulation period, right? The romance of conception. Indeed. Well, I wouldn't want to make light of anybody's attempts to conceive because I I understand that for some couples that can be very stressful Mm. uh, and sometimes things get more complicated. And this also hints as well, I think, at sometimes the pressure that's put on men to perform. You know, especially when men talk to each other, they'll say, oh, great the wife wants a baby any minute she says drop your trousers and give it to me actually in practice you might not always be up for that this man's nervous that he's going to last too long and not deliver what she wants you know it's not necessarily a a ride in the park just because you get to have lots of sex no and also i think uh for a lot of men the added pressure of thinking well this isn't sexy sex or love making sex this is baby creation sex i have to perform (laughs) my sperm have to do their job and there's nothing less sexy really is there than think than the, the than that kind of intensity. Just to explain briefly the way a woman's menstrual cycle works, mm-hmm. around 12 to 14 days after she has a period, she will ovulate. She'll release an egg from the ovaries and it'll travel down the floping tubes to the womb. Her temperature will change at the point of ovulation. So it sounds like our writer and his wife are monitoring her cycle using a thermometer. But once that egg has been released... It will stay within the body, ready to be fertilised, for around 12 to 24 hours. Okay, so it's not such a small time window, really. It's a relatively large time window. You have lots of sex in 24 hours. Plus, don't forget that sperm can remain alive within the body for up to three days as Mm. well. So if they have sex three days before she ovulates, that sperm will be there waiting to pounce. So... Even though whatever methods they're using to track her fertility might tell them the exact moment of ovulation, it doesn't mean they have to spring into action and whip back the covers and bounce into bed straight away. Okay. So knowing that might help them both relax a little bit more. And bearing in mind that stress and anxiety are not going to be good for either of their bodies when it comes to conception... Learning just to relax a little bit is not only going to make the process more pleasant for them both and facilitate things like ejaculation, but it may also help them make a baby uh, if they can manage to relax about it a little bit. Okay, that is great advice. But what about more generally for our listeners who identify with the question, not because, you know, they're looking to conceive a baby, but because it takes them ages to come and they actually wish 
it could be faster? It's an interesting question because we usually hear the opposite. You know, how do I delay ejaculation? But what if you want to bring it on as quickly as possible? If you do want to come more quickly, a few things that you might want to try. The obvious one is wankless. The less you masturbate, the more the sensation of sex is going to feel stimulating to you and the faster you're likely to come. I would, though advocate at least having sex or wanking every few days if you're trying to conceive because you want the sperm that gets inside your wife's body uh, to be as fresh as possible Mm -hmm. if it's been lingering in your testicles for a while it is still effective but it'll be less effective you want you want to keep replenishing your stores so masturbating less is one option try prostate stimulation Mm -hmm. and prostate uh, can be stimulated in a variety of ways the most common way of uh, of tickling that tickling area is by inserting a finger or a toy up the rectal passage so one up the bum no harm done you might be faster to make you come if you haven't tried that before i would uh, recommend just uh, having a little fondle of yourself in the shower to get yourself accustomed to that sort of sensation uh, is something he'll obviously want to chat about with his wife rather than <laughs> just jamming an unlubricated digit up his rear end, which is more of a shock rather than a, rather than a turn on. But for a lot of men, if you use plenty of lubricant and either a small butt plug or or a finger, you can use latex gloves or pop a condom over your finger if you if you're worried about mess. Provided they've discussed that beforehand, the intensity of that feeling can make a lot of guys come extremely fast. Mm-hmm. A quick note, if you're having quickies, you may well be using lube, uh, especially if, you, if your wife and you don't have loads of time for foreplay. Uh, some lubricants do make it more difficult to uh, conceive because they tend to slow down uh, the way that sperm move. So look for conception-friendly lubricants. There are a few, there's one called Pre-Seed and a few others on the market. I know Superdrug stock a lot of them they are designed specifically to make sperm swim as smoothly as possible finally we've spoken about kegels before uh, yes. a muscular exercise where Pelvic you, tightening yeah you you squeeze the same muscles that you would if you wanted to stop weeing if you squeeze those during sex some men say that that makes them ejaculate faster see i've heard the opposite i've heard squeeze those if you want to delay ejaculation it depends on the gentleman it's horses for courses with this one with other people they try very hard to relax those muscles mm. you're going to have to experiment and see how your particular body works but prior to ejaculation certain muscles in the male body do tense up and some people find that if they, they tense the ones around that area on purpose themselves then that can actually help trigger the ejaculation to happen another thing that his wife might want to do is if she knows if she's really carefully tracking her cycle she'll know when ovulation is approaching and she could maybe do something like send him some sexy texts or get him going throughout the day so if she suspects that she's about to pop an egg out around that day or that evening then she can help to warm him up and that give might him a mean... seven hour erection <laughs> and then it'll all be over much more quickly just ensure that he's raring to go when the moment arrives well if you want to be raring to go whenever the moment arrives for you make sure you have appropriate protection and you can buy that from mycondom.com and if you use the code foxhole then you get a whole 15 percent off and if you have a question of sex for alex what do people need to do just trot on over to our website which is modernmanman.co.uk and click on the feedback form you don't have to give your name if you don't want to just the details of your dilemma 
And with that, we have very nearly reached the end of our Modern Man Festivals special, so time to plough your car through some mud and wonder at just how clean a motorway service station can seem. But I just have time to squeeze in a new man ambassador. It is Gary in Austin, Texas, who says, Ollie, I really enjoy the show and I've bought you a round of beers to say thanks. If you ever get to South by Southwest, I will gladly buy you a real beer. Now, that is a festival I would like to go to. Thank you, Gary. I hereby anoint you Manbassador for Austin. Our theme is by Django Django, and now stand by for our record of the week. It is by brand new outfit Videotion. They sent us their debut track. It's called Fruitless Fever. We loved it. We're going to play it. It's out now on uber cool underground imprint Bon Nudity. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer Matt Hill. And we'll see you next Tuesday. Sentiment in why we're living is never to be seen. But I would give up all my wishes, someone please tell me. So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, on Tuesday, we head to the battlefields of medieval Spain to witness the very first ambulance. On Wednesday, it's the anniversary of the day Coca-Cola's creator hit on his winning formula. He dropped the wine, but kept the cocaine. On Thursday, the thief who stuffed the crown jewels down his trousers. And on Friday, when free-spirited Danish parenting put 90s New York in a tears. We discuss this and more on Today in History with the Retrospectors. Ten minutes every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts.